Good morning. Good to see all of you back indoors. I've enjoyed the outdoor services, but I think uh, we're not going to mind having a little air condition here before long. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, a passage we began last week and that we'll conclude next week. As most of you know, we were studying the book of Romans. Mark was teaching through the book of Romans, came to the end of chapter 5, and then for the summer, our focus has been on the local church. Uh, It's a good idea every so often to just stop and ask the question, what is the church and uh, what's the significance of it? What, What is the role that it plays? And Mark Carey said a few weeks ago that the purpose of the church is to glorify God, uh, that it's actually the number one means by which people who don't yet know Christ can see Christ. Um, You know, we're wanting people to be able to know the goodness of God, but unless they see him, it's going to be hard for them to hear the gospel. It's going to be hard for them to believe it, and the church is the means by which the world sees God. Last week, we talked about the role that unity plays in uh, showing the glory of God, that, that the more that we are moving towards unity within the body, and, and Paul told us in the first six verses of this chapter some of the steps towards doing that, like walking worthy of our calling uh, by pursuing humility and, and patience and gentleness and tolerance and, and moving in love, uh, that when people do that, it tends to build unity, not uniformity. Uh, The church wasn't built to be um, uniform in the sense that all of us are the exact same. Uh, Unity is the bringing together of diverse elements so that when all of us are together magnifying Christ, the whole church has a much broader and much deeper impact on the world. Well, so we looked at unity last week, but this week we're going to look at maturity, and I invite you to follow with me. We're going to begin reading in verse 7, and we're going to move our way through verse 16, but rather than reading all 10 verses at once, that would be difficult to keep up with. We're just going to do it in bite-sized pieces, Um, because as important as unity is, it's it's not the only element of glorifying God. Let's look at this section on maturity. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So this idea, we're pursuing unity, but unity is this idea of how the whole body reflects one God, one Lord, one spirit, one faith, one baptism. That's what we looked at last week. But now he's, he's shifted from the one God, one spirit, one baptism, one faith, one, one body. He's shifted to that now to each. So now he's talking about each one of us who are in Christ. To each one of us, and he's specifically talking about people who have come to faith in Christ. Um, I had a pastor many, many years ago when I was in college shortly after coming to faith in Christ. And He caught my attention when he made the point that just because a mouse is in a cookie jar doesn't make it a cookie. Uh, 
And in the same way, just because a person is in a church doesn't make her or him a Christian. But this, specifically when he says each one of us, he's talking about all of us who have come to understand that we're a sinner and that we deserve the judgment of God, but that we believe Christ died in our place and paid the entire price and offered eternal life to all who believe. Those are the people he's talking about. What does he say? Grace was given to each one of those according to the measure of Christ's gift. And we're going to see in just a minute what he means by his gift. But the grace that was given to you as a believer included with it a gift that is directly involved with the maturity of the body. And we'll see that in just a little bit here. And it says, verse 8, therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. This is interesting because it's part of the same psalm that, that Colin read from earlier, Psalm 68. That psalm is a messianic psalm. That is, it, it tells of a prophecy of the coming Savior. 900 years before he came, Psalm 68 talks about his victory. And we only read a section of it, but a little later in the psalm, it makes this exact point. It says, he ascended on high and led captive a host of captives. Now, in Psalm 68, it says he received gifts. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul is inspired by the Holy Spirit to turn that around and instead of talking about the gifts he received, to talk about the gifts he gave, which is, I think, significant. When, um, at the time that the New Testament was written, Rome was obviously in charge. And one of the things that would happen when Rome would conquer a province or an area, they would capture prisoners. And when they captured prisoners, they also captured their possessions. And they would lead them on a, a parade through the city on display for all the people to see the strength of the army and to be able to respect and to trust their leadership. It was a testimony of the power of Rome. So you would see these captives following in a train behind the general. And you would see all the possessions that they had acquired, all the, the, the treasure they had gained through their victory. Well, this is the exact same kind of idea here. That, that in Psalm 68, Jesus is being prophesied as a coming victorious general. And this coming victorious general is going to capture people. And in Psalm 68, it says he'll receive gifts, which is what would normally happen. The general would receive the, the booty, and he would spread it with those who, who worked with him in, the, in gaining the victory. But in this interesting, when Jesus ascended on high and led captive host, a host of captives and gave gifts to men, it's the picture of the fact that if you're a believer, this is actually talking about you. You and I were actually, and this is a hard thing to understand, not all commentators agree, but I think it's the easiest way to understand this, that Jesus, when he ascended in a spiritual sense, he took captive with him all those who would one day believe on Christ, even people not yet born like you and me. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6 that when Jesus was crucified, we were crucified with him. It says when he died, we died. It says when we were raised, 
when he was raised, we were raised. In the book of Ephesians, it says we were seated with him in the heavenlies. In the book of Colossians, it says that we're there at at his right side, he who sits at the right hand of God. In fact, it tells us in Colossians then to keep our mind fixed on heavenly things as a result of that, to not let our vision be totally caught up with all that's right in front of us. So the thing is, we don't think this way very much. I don't think this way very much. But the point is, it's saying Jesus led captive in some spiritual way I don't understand all those who would believe on him in his victor train and paraded through the heavens. But then, instead of him receiving gifts from us, he turned around and gave us gifts. We're going to talk more about those gifts in just a little bit. He says in verse 9 then, Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. This is a picture of Jesus. It's the realization that Jesus descended. And commentators, again, have different opinions. It could either mean descended to the earth or it could mean descended to be buried when he died. I go along with those who believe that because it's said into the lower parts of the earth, that what it's really referring to is Jesus descended, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3 and 4 say that he preached the gospel to souls in prison or to those who are dead, which many believe to be the Old Testament saints. He basically explained, I am Messiah. And so I think that's what it's referring to, that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth, but then it says he also ascended far above all the heavens. And that's a picture, it's a kind of like a word picture of the fact that if this is the bottom of the earth, uh, if the very bottom of anything, even the dead, and this is the very top of things, he descended as far down as anyone could descend and ascended as high as anybody could ascend. Why? Because he's the master of all of it. He's the master of the past. He's the master of the future. He's the master of the spiritual realm. He's the master of the physical realm. He is the Lord of it all. It's a picture that he who descended is also he who ascended. And the reason is, it says in verse 10 at the very end, so that he might fill all things. That he might fill all things. Jesus is going to fill all things. And we'll see what the rest, how the rest of the passage amplifies the idea that Jesus wants to fill all things. Let's move into this next section. Verse 11 says, and this is talking now about some of the gifts that he was referring to. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. I'm going to stop there for a reason. This is not at all a complete list of gifts within the body of Christ. In fact, this is the shortest single list of gifts in the body anywhere in the Bible. You can go to 1 Peter 4 and see spiritual gifts. You can go to Romans 12 and see spiritual gifts. You can go to 1 Corinthians 12 and see spiritual gifts, and you'll see longer lists where it's talking about a whole bunch of gifts within the body. But this little bitty list is only a list of the things that are at the foundation, the core of the church. And there's a reason we're going to see in the whole rest of the passage. This, This is why the passage started out 
when it said to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's bestowal. Each one of us, if you're a Christian. Why? Well, you see, the apostles and the prophets, they were the only ones who had the ability to actually reveal new truth. They were the only ones who could speak for God as the Holy Spirit inspired them. They could speak truth. In fact, we have it in the scriptures. What the apostles and what the prophets have written is here in our Bible. And once the Bible was complete around 90 AD, there was no longer a need for prophets, no longer a need for the apostles. Those foundational gifts had been established and the church, the church had been established. But notice the other gifts. He gave some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Why? Well, because we needed people. We're going to see that the evangelists and pastors and teachers each have a role, but they have a dual role. Evangelists were supposed to share the gospel with people. The Apostle Paul was clearly an evangelist. All of us, though, are supposed to share the gospel, so we'll see that evangelists don't only have the role of sharing the gospel, they also have another role. Same thing with pastors and teachers. Pastors have a responsibility to guide the flock, to shepherd the flock, to care for the flock. Teachers have a responsibility to teach the people who are part of the body of Christ, to teach them. Uh, some people believe, and it's really difficult to discern, the, this could just refer to one gift, the gift of pastor-teacher. And I'm, I'm not going to go to the wall either way, whether it's pastor as a gift and teacher as a gift or pastor-teacher. But in any case, those are people who are supposed to um, care for and teach. But do you notice something? I stopped before I got to verse 12 because verse 12 tells us the even bigger job of evangelists and pastors and teachers. Look at what it says in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Let me read that again. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, let's pursue unity like verses 1 through 6 says. That's how we walk worthy. That means for me to grow in humility, for you to grow in gentleness, for, for you to grow in patience, for you to be more tolerant, and for all of us to do it in love. That's for all of us. But then if you're a Christian, you have been given a gift by God. God has given you a gift. And he wants the, the primary leaders of the church, the, if you will, the evangelists, pastors, and teachers, to equip you to do the work of service so that the body of Christ will be built up. I remember when I first heard this. I had been a Christian about two and a half or three years, and I got scared. I actually thought this was a really bad idea. And I told God that. I said, this is a really bad idea that you want people like me to, to be used in the body of Christ. I don't mean as a pastor. That was long away. I wasn't ever considering that kind of a thing. That would have been nuts. But just, just the idea that God wanted to equip a normal person like me to serve in the body, I really thought was a terrible idea. I mean, my life didn't measure up. I didn't have enough Bible knowledge. I didn't have a consistent enough walk. I was nervous and sharing my face. Why in the world would you have me? But here's the thing. This passage is teaching us such an important principle that it was never, never God's intention 
that the person who stood up in front of people or wore a collar or wore a robe or whatever, like what I grew up with, that that was considered the minister. I really believe that if Jesus came right now in the flesh and saw churches where people seem to think that someone is reverend so-and-so and that they are somehow the minister of the church, I just think he would weep and I think he would scream. It was never, ever his plan for one person or two people or three people. His purpose was that those who were gifted in some of these fundamental roles would equip everybody else to do the work of the ministry. Why? Look at what it says. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature belonging to the fullness of Christ. That's again another one of these long sentences of Paul. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature belonging to the fullness of Christ. What he's saying is this. We are supposed to all exercise our gifts, whatever they are. If you're a Christian, and if the person to your right is a Christian, the person to your left is a Christian, young person, woman, man, whoever, those people and you and I, are, we are, until we reach the unity of the faith, that is, until all of us have a complete grasp on the knowledge of God. In fact, it says this unity of the faith ultimately leads into a knowledge of the Son of God. And you say, well, that's a weird thing to say. I thought we already knew, knew God. I thought we already knew Jesus. We're Christians. It just got, this has been clear. He's already told us in the first three chapters who the people are who are Christians. And you're saying that Christians have been given a, nift, a gift and now you say they're supposed to exercise their gifts until they come to the knowledge of the Son of God, what does that mean? Well, here's the thing. The knowledge of the Son of God is not what happens when we meet Christ. I mean, that is. That is the knowledge of the Son of God. You meet Christ. You, you believe the gospel. I was a sinner. I, I, and because of my sin, I deserve judgment from God. And as a, as a sinner who deserved judgment from God, I needed his mercy and I believe Jesus died in my place and offered me life, and I believed it. That made me a Christian. Great, that's fine. But do you know that his goal is for me to continue to grow to know him? The Apostle Paul, who I think knew Jesus fairly well, makes a point in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, you can take all of my greatest attributes, all of my history, all my teaching, all of my gifting, take it all away, just to give me one thing, I just want to know Jesus a little bit better. Philippians 3.10. That I might know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul is saying no matter what I have, the only thing I really want is a little bit more knowledge of Jesus. Why? Well, do you know that in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it says that the reason that Satan does battle with Christians it says in verse 5 is to block us from the knowledge of God. Well, isn't it too late? I'm a Christian. No, it's not too late. If you're a Christian, you've met Christ. But God's purpose is that you might grow to know him. Why? Why would Satan be so interested to just keep your knowledge of Christ at a lower level? Why would that be a big deal? Well, among other things, 
Jesus says the knowledge of God is actually the definition of eternal life, meaning the more I know Christ, the more I experience life. I remember, uh, I told the story before, so I won't tell it again, but I remember a man who'd been a theologian who had been one of the professors at one of my seminaries whom I had seen five or six years after I graduated, and I, knew, I noticed this change in his life at about age 62, just remarkable change. And I asked him what had been going on, and he said, well, the last few years I've been hot-tubbing with Jesus. Literally. This is a Midwestern boy who moved out to California. He said, I don't know if you know, we Midwestern boys don't know what hot tubs are, but when I moved to California, every house comes with one. But he made the point that in the last two years of hot-tubbing with Jesus, literally what he called it, he said, I've gotten to know him better than I've gotten to know him in 45 years of studying theology. He said, I wouldn't take for all the time I've spent studying theology. I'm grateful for it. But it was the fellowship with him. I've just come to know him better and love him more. And I'm telling you what, that guy was infectious when I saw him. And he was not infectious when he was a professor of mine. He was more of an infection. But it was the growing knowledge of Christ that made this man so attractive, I just wanted to spend time with him, which would have been literally the last thing anybody would have said about him back when he'd been a professor years before. Why? Because he was getting to know Jesus more. And what Paul is saying is that when each one of us functions and, and we're equipped to do what we were meant to do in the body, it actually makes the whole church more infectious. Because, see, then we become... We move to the point that we are a mature man, the measure of the stature belonging to the fullness of Christ, meaning that John 1.14 says that he was full of grace and full of truth. A church is supposed to get to the point where it's increasingly marked by the fullness of Christ, meaning we are more full of grace and more full of truth. I'm going to ask you something. When you think of Fellowship Bible Church, and don't don't jump out with your answers. Just think quietly about this. When you think of Fellowship Bible Church, what do you think about when you think about its strongest attributes? That is, what attracts people to want to come here? Um, we've asked people for years. I've been here be almost 27 years now. Um, we've asked hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people at visitor luncheons and all that, what made you come here? The first answer most times is because I've heard that the teaching is really good. Well, I hope so. I hope there's good teaching here. Um, I certainly enjoy the people I get to, to hear. Um, but think about it. If this church was fundamentally known as a good teaching church, might that imply, no, it doesn't have to imply, but isn't it possible that if it were a good teaching church, it might be weak in some other areas? See, I think it could be. I think that if God's goal is for the fullness of Christ so that his glory is seen, then there are areas this church is not yet what she should be. Maybe we're good at teaching. Maybe we're not so good with the poor. Maybe we're good at having a remarkably well-organized children's ministry. Well, I mean, what, the best I've seen personally up close in terms of the care and the, the execution and the people. I love this children's ministry. But are we as a church doing as well, for example, at outreach? 
We have a guy like a Scott Santmeyer, clearly a gifted evangelist, who every, anywhere you cut him, he bleeds the gospel. He loves to share Christ every chance he gets. But Scott's burden isn't just to do it himself. It's to infect the church with a heart for sharing the gospel. So here's the question. If God is trying to make us as a church to be the mature man that is the reflection of the fullness of Christ, what does he need to do in order to accomplish it? What needs to happen for this church to become mature in the way that that idea is here? A mature church, it says, as a result, we are no longer to be children. Children is the opposite of mature. You know, um, when you think about when a person is no longer a child, it's when she or he can reproduce. What ends up happening often in a church, and actually I think it sometimes happens more in a big church because it looks like there are, everything is being taken care of. We can be perpetual children in the sense that we are not reproducing ourselves. And if that were true of us as a church, then we would be, the next words say, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But instead, what God wants, what God is trying to do in this church, is he's trying to make us the next part, people who speak the truth in love and who grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. That's maturity. But do we see, do we see what that takes? It, it takes gifted people who will equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, whatever that ministry is. Might it be helping with three-year-olds? Sure, that's a great thing. We ought to recruit and keep them through. I love watching the teachers that we have in the three-year-olds. I, I love what we have with, with youth and with other areas, but folks, it may just as well be something that we're doing outside the walls of this church. Maybe there are ways of caring for the poor we don't do that is really the heart of Christ. Maybe um, what we can do in terms of helping bridge racial gaps that are just breaking this society apart, maybe there are things that we can do that far outstretch anything any of us have ever done. As a church, I don't know what it is, but I know this, Christ wants the fullness of Christ to manifest itself within this church, and it will only happen, let's read the next part, verse 16, it'll only happen Verse 16, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together, together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Do we see that? What it's saying is this church will never be built up the way it was meant to be built up unless every joint supplies what it was meant to. You might be an ankle. You might be an elbow. I think of myself as a shoulder, somebody who hopefully mobilizes other people into being able to serve by helping encourage them, by helping train them to be able to minister in people's lives. So I look at myself as a joint, but it says this, according to the proper working of each individual part, why? 
Well, because, you know, an ankle doesn't sound very significant, but if you've ever really sprained one pretty badly, like I have done about a dozen times, it occupies all of your attention and all of your thought, and it inhibits you from being able to do very much useful. If your shoulder is out, it becomes the most preoccupying concern in your, li- in your life. You can't even sleep. All these joints that every one of us is, the parts of the body, if I am not stepping forward and saying, I want to be equipped in my Christian life so that God can use me because that's what he's called me to, this body will never be mature in the way that she was meant to be. And as a result, the glory of God will be diminished. I believe that unity is very important. But apparently, the individual working of each individual part is also very important. And I don't know what your role is. But I'll finish with this. You'll you'll see it if you've been following on the app or wherever it is where the outline of the sermon is uh, that is, I think, on the church website. But I have four questions at the end. Number one, do you know Christ? This whole message has been to people who know Christ. If you don't, please know that he loves you. Please know that he knows your sin. Please know that he knows the worst part about you and loves you anyway and died for you. And that he loves to offer life to anyone who would believe. It can happen today. Just believe the gospel. Secondly, are you pursuing unity? Are you taking seriously what the Apostle Paul was inspired to write about walking worthy of the calling with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance to each other in love? Are you doing that? Number three, are you permitting yourself to be equipped in your Christian life, your walk with him, your daily walk with him? Are you growing and then being equipped to utilize the gifts he's given you so that he gets more glory? I think those are the questions. And I leave us all with just the next question, the final question, what next? What next for you? What next for me? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the fact that even though these words frightened me 40 years ago because I knew I wouldn't be able to ever serve you and I knew I would mess it up, that you encouraged me. You used other men and women to encourage me to to trust you more than I trusted myself. You trusted me to, you, you encouraged me to go ahead and just keep studying the word and keep serving and share my faith as I had opportunity and learn to use my gifts as I could. And it all seemed very little at the time. It didn't seem significant at all. But what it's taught me, Lord, is that you want every man, woman, and child who trusts in Christ to be used by you so that you get the glory. And I'm praying for that for our church, Lord. May this passage be a source of encouragement to each of us. Use it. Strengthen us. Glorify yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.